of that kind of announcements. So let's get on into the sermon today. I want to continue the thought of healing. Uh, last week, I showed uh, in some of the prophetic passages how sin is involved in sickness and how that healing does in part have to do with the forgiveness of sin. And I think showed as well that just because we're sick does not necessarily mean that we have sinned any greater than anyone else. Um, sometimes sin is involved. Sometimes, as Christ showed, there was no sin either in the man or in the parents, but the sickness was there, the blindness to show the glory of God at a particular time. Well, God has many reasons for allowing sin and sickness. He has an intent and a desire to forgive sin. God did send his only begotten Son into the world that mankind might have forgiveness. And the whole thing about Christ being slain from the foundations of the world was that God knew well ahead of time that man would sin and forgiveness would be needed. So we need to understand that God's whole attitude and approach to human beings is that all their sins be forgiven. God intends us to have long life. In fact, ultimately, eternal life. That is his purpose and intent. The Protestant approach that God is going to get you for that is entirely wrong. God intends to forgive. He set the whole plan up with one of its main facets, that of forgiveness through Christ's death. And physical healing through his stripes that he suffered in his broken body. And he did not need to go through that except for that. And certainly the covenant that we made, well, that even ancient Israel made, was of health and wealth. And the new covenant is eternal health and wealth. And whatever we go through in the meantime is that that might be ensured. Now we saw that sin is involved in sickness. Christ said, which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven or pick up your bed and walk. In any case, his attitude was, your sins be forgiven. I mean, he automatically is saying, if he says, pick up your bed and walk, I'm forgiving your sins, because he says in Psalm 103, I forgive your sins or your iniquities, and I heal your diseases. So when he heals, if there is sin involved, I say if because it is not always the case, it is automatically forgiven, no matter what method he uses, whether he takes mud and puts it in your eye, or says, pick up your bed, or your sins be forgiven you, or whatever, his whole attitude is to forgive and to heal and to help. We're going to see today that not only repentance on our part and our change from going into sin or continuing to sin is important, but I don't think I'll get into that particular aspect. What I want to get into today is another facet of that, and that is that our faith has a great deal to do with it. 
and I'm not going to jump all over us today for having, not having enough faith and tell you that the reason we're not healed is that we don't have enough faith. I think we're going to find some very encouraging things. We're going to do some definitions, and I hope be encouraged by the time we're done with the service today. Let's go, and starting out, to Matthew 8. Matthew 8. And here I want to think about verse 5. Let's start in verse 2. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The man's attitude was positive. He was looking forward to healing. He knew that it could come. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will. That's my purpose. That's my desire. Be you clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See you tell no man, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came to him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him, offer to come to his house. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goes, to another come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Truly I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Roman centurion, Gentile, not even an Israelite. He simply believed that if Christ said it would be done, it would be done. No mystery to him. That's simple. You say it, I accept it. It'll be done. I'll go home. I'll find him well and ready to get to work. Hang on. That is an incredible example of someone who simply had trust and belief, and it was as good as done. There's a goal for us to shoot for, to have that kind of attitude. And he says, I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so be it done to you. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Some in the church will not be in the kingdom of God. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they simply don't believe the promises of God, whatever they might be, whether it have to do with healing or whether it have to do with other promises of God. It's just simply hard for human beings to believe that God has our best interests in mind. We look at what is going on, we see circumstances, we see physical maladies of whatever kind, 
troubles, trials, and tribulations, and we have trouble believing that God really cares about us. So Christ pointed out very clearly and marveled at someone who would have such an attitude. Very, very unusual it is to see that. It was unusual for him to see it, and it's unusual for him to see it today. Let's go to Matthew 9. Verse 2, Matthew 9, 2. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, your sins be forgiven you. Some of the scribes said, This man blasphemes. How could he forgive sins? Nobody can do that. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think you evil in your hearts? What's easier to say? Your sins be forgiven you, or arise and walk. What difference does it make? I can do it any way I so choose. He has different ways he can do things. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then says he to the sick of the palsy, Rise, take up your bed, and go to your house. So there was forgiveness of sin, but he also saw their faith and trust in bringing this man before God, before Christ. I wanted to show some examples of that. Verse 22. Well, verse 20. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood, 12 years, this is something that had gone on and on and on, came behind him and touched the hem of his garment, for she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. That's pretty strong belief, isn't it? If I, if I could just touch only his clothes, I know I'll be healed. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And then he resurrected a maid. They laughed him to scorn, but he did that. I'm pointing out, though, primarily these lessons in faith. Uh, Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Let's begin in verse 46. Or did I write that down wrong? Since that one doesn't have 46, I guess I wrote it wrong. It's okay. Let's go to Luke 17. And there are a lot of examples. I'm certainly not going to hit them all anyway. Luke 17. Here were ten leopards beginning in verse 11, it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria to Galilee, and as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood far off because of being contagious, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are not found that return to give glory to God except this stranger. 
And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. God is very concerned that we have thankful attitudes to go with our faith. But our part is repenting of any sins that we might know of in our lives and then trusting God wholly, completely, and believing with all our heart that God can and will take care of our problems, whatever they might be. Now, there are several things we have to also consider. Let's consider first Acts 3. Sometimes God does not do things when and how we would wish. Now, once the Passover was done, he told them, you wait in Jerusalem until Pentecost. He had some things in mind to do at Pentecost. He wasn't going to answer everything they wanted answered at that moment, but he had a specific time in mind. And he had the glory of God to show. So he showed it with the flames of fire. He showed it with uh, tremendously inspirational preaching. And he began to show his glory and the, the terms of the new covenant being carried out and him fulfilling his part through some incredible healings because the glory of God and the power of God was to be shown. And it didn't have to do necessarily, in this case, only with the faith of the people or even the repentance of the people. Remember, Christ healed some people who were not converted, a lot of people who weren't converted, simply because they believed it could happen and he wanted to show that he was the Son of God on earth. Now, he showed in the early New Testament church that he was with it. And he is again going to show that kind of power here at the end in some form and fashion and way in much the same way he did in Acts 2. And I've showed that from Amos and Joel that... Peter thought what was happening was the end of the age because that's what had been prophesied. It wasn't. It was a, let's say, a more minor fulfillment, perhaps, of what will happen at the end of the age. It wasn't just Christ, but Christ working through men then that showed God's power on earth. Chapter 3 of Acts. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. They had a certain belief in God, and they brought this man to the temple every day. He had been born this way. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed to them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. How many people would rather have healing today than silver and gold? 
How many people spend all their silver and gold trying to get healing and can't? And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, received strength and he, leaping up, stood and walked, and entered with him into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened to him. God did something to show his power and his glory. He had caused this man to be at that gate day in and day out probably all his life. Everyone who went through that gate knew who he was. And God healed to show where he was working. Now there is a specific day, I think it's Isaiah that tells us, when God is going to begin to bless his people again after scattering. A set appointed time, just as Pentecost was a set appointed time. And we must tarry and wait for that set appointed time. It shall surely come. You who are listening here today, and many of you across the country, have heard sermons in the last few years showing that God is going to cause this kind of miracles to happen again. Some thought the minute they came here that would happen, and when that did not happen immediately, they became disillusioned and said, well, God must not be working here. Some gave up and left. Some are still waiting in faith. We'll talk about that. Because we are not all healed does not necessarily mean we don't have faith. Because faith has something more to do with our lives than just that. God wants eternal healing. He wants eternal life in each of us. And sometimes we must go through a great deal in order to prepare us for that. And if we live faithfully, walk by faith, and continue in faith, eventually our prayers will be answered. But not always immediately. We're going to see that as we get more and more into these scriptures. Uh, Let's go to Acts 9 and begin in verse 32. Acts 9, verse 32. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydia. And there he found a certain man named Aenus, or Aeneas, I guess it is, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. Been in bed, bed fast, eight years. That's a long time to lay in bed. I can hardly stand it for a day or two. Eight years in bed with palsy. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydia and Saran saw him and turned to the eternal. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tapitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas, this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. 
From when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber, and forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent to him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter rose and went with them, and when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body said, Capita, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Absolute resurrection. I believe with all my heart that is going to happen again. That there are those who will walk by faith and believe in God. And as a result of that, he is going to do great signs and wonders here at the end. Where and when and how he does that, of course, is entirely up to him. It could be with us. It could be with someone else. But it's going to be among those saints whom God has called. There is no reason we cannot be a part of that. Anyone who has been called into God's church at this time, no matter what branch of it they might be in, or where they may be, they have an opportunity right now to walk in faith, to develop trust in God, so that they can be a part of what God has promised. God would not have called you and me if he did not want us to be a part of what he's doing here at the end. There are many scriptures that show that there are some who will not believe and who will not walk, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but there are scriptures that show that some will wake up, some will believe, a faithful remnant will survive, and God will work through them to do tremendous miracles at the end. We can be among those. I'm not saying we are or will. I'm not saying we're any better than anyone else. I'm including everyone here. And I'm saying the opportunity is there for anyone who will. We, you and I, have that opportunity to be a part. If we will do even greater things than Christ did, there have to be miraculous healings and even resurrections at the end of the age. God worked through the apostles whom he had called. He worked through some of the deacons. He can choose when and how he wishes to do things, and certainly will. We cannot take anything on ourselves, all we can do is prepare ourselves by walking in faith to be a part of what God does at the end, whether we are those he uses as he did Peter and John, or whether we are those who are healed, or whether we are merely those who believe and are saved. But we have great opportunity. 
His intent is to forgive and to heal. And overall, his intent above your life and mine is to show his great glory and to show his purpose worked out here below. Now, how does he go about this? And where do we fit into this framework? If his intent is to heal, and he does, and we see interventions, we see some healings, we see help from God, we don't yet see all of us healed, do we? We don't see the shadow of Peter passing over people, which is, I think, in the next, it's right here in this context anyway, I'll not go to it. But were there shadow just passing over people who did not even know the truth? And they were healed. Well, if God would heal people to show his glory who aren't even converted, and maybe they become converted, we are, or being converted, why aren't we all healed by now? I can see several reasons for that. One might be that we would gain notoriety that God does not yet want his people to have. It is not time for him to show his hand in that kind of miraculous way. Neither was it at the Passover back in that day. It was his goal and intent to do it at Pentecost that year when he started the First Fruits Church. And when it was time, it happened. And when it is time again for him to show his glory on this earth, it will happen. Meantime, why has God scattered the church? Because of spiritual sickness, because of spiritual vanity and self-righteousness. And we also have much physical sickness throughout the greater church of God. Now, is he doing all of this just to show his glory at some point? No. Because 90% of the church will not even respond to the two witnesses when they show up. 90%, it appears, will go into the tribulation. 30% or so will repent there, according to Zechariah. God is going to put his people through a great deal to fulfill his purpose in them. And I think we need to understand that. that we must walk by faith. Faith is something you live and walk by. Faith is not something you simply summon once in a while when you need anointed. The just shall live by faith, walk by faith. It is a daily thing where we trust God that his way is the best way to live. And then when a crisis comes, that trust in the little things has already been built, and we can trust in bigger things. I think sometimes we get the feeling, or we live in such a way, that we think faith is like an aspirin, and anointing is like an aspirin. That it's something you just need once in a while. No, we live and walk by faith. Now, whom has God called? First Corinthians, we sing about. In the verse, chapter 1, verse 26, he's called the weak and the base of the world. 
Now, weak can mean weak physically. It can mean, mean weak mentally, emotionally. It just means the weak. Weak in any and every way, for that matter. And base. If someone is base, what are they? They're sinners. They're unrighteous. They're lives, thieves, adulterers, liars, thieves, adulterers, murderers, mentally weak, emotionally weak, unable to manage their lives properly, in other words. That's the kind of people God calls. People with great glaring faults and weaknesses. So we are what we are when God begins to turn us around. And people who live in a weak and base manner, with very few nobles among them, have to assess their situation and have to come to the point they aren't that way anymore over a period of time and growth. They have to be convinced that lying, stealing, drinking, adulterating, and everything else that might be contrary to God's way of life is not the way to live. Now, to that point, they have been living that way. They have been walking that way. It is their manner and their way of life. Now, they must have convinced themselves at some point that that was the best way for them to live because that satisfied whatever desires, however base they might have been, that they had because they walked in utter selfishness. And all depression and self-pity are is selfishness, self-centeredness, all worried about me. Now, the way that God would have us walk is to have our lives centered around serving and helping and loving and giving to others. But man's nature will convince him, his own carnality that it is better to do whatever you want to do that you think will make you feel better, look better, and enjoy life more. That is the way that seems right to a man, and it ends in death. But that's the kind that God starts with. Now, let's go back to 1 Samuel 22 just a moment and see that not only is 1 Corinthians 1 there for us in the New Testament church, but there is a pattern in a way that God has always worked. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He works the same way in whatever age to accomplish his purposes. Now, his purpose back in Samuel was to anoint David as king when David was out minding the sheep and wasn't anything, wandering around behind sheep. He anointed him when they were older, perhaps better looking, bigger, stronger brothers in the family ahead of him. But God wanted David because he saw something in his heart and mind that there that was there that he could use. And through David, and his lineage was to come Christ, and that David's throne would be established and exalted forever. 
Now here was something that started small that was going to become very large and be there forevermore. How did God start it? Did he start it with a great dramatic beginning? Chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. Saul was after him, wanted to kill him. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So his, his own family came. And who else came? The weak and the base. Everyone that was in distress, doesn't say what kind of distress, but whatever kind of distress. Life wasn't going too well for them. They showed up. Everyone that was in debt had MasterCard and Visa coming out their ears, we might say today. And everyone that was discontented, or as my margin says, bitter of soul. We have a lot of people in the church today that are bitter of soul. They've come, they've believed, they've seen it all fall apart, they've seen misuse and abuse, and they become pretty bitter at heart and soul. And they all have their war stories. I'm sure when these people showed up at Cave Adullam with David, they all had their gripes and complaints about the way things that were in the government, in the country, <coughs> why they were distressed, why they were in debt, and why they were bitter of soul. They all had their war stories. They gathered themselves to David, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Now that became the basis of David's kingdom, was those 400. They were the ones that didn't amount to much. Now did Christ's disciples, when he began to call them, the apostles amount to much? Fishermen, tax collectors, just average guys. <laughs> average people, whatever they might have been. But he worked through them. Now they looked to David as their leader here, and they became a formidable fighting force. They became a very intrinsic part of David's government. God had them live out there in the caves together for a while to become a family, to become a team, to become something that could be of use when God exalted David. Now the story goes on. David went thence to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray you, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. I think this is a very interesting and revealing passage here. He looked to Moab for help for his parents, and indeed, Edom and Moab are told to protect God's people in the end time prophecies, Isaiah 16 for one, and among others. But David, even though he had been anointed by God, and even, the, even we, though we have been anointed by God, have we not? Through baptism and the receiving of his Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. We've been anointed and set aside of God, 
And yet we're sitting saying, take care of things till I know what God will do for me. I think there's a very interesting parallel here. We don't have all the answers yet. David, even though he had been anointed, had gone through trial and persecution. Saul was trying to kill him at this very time. And he said, till I know what God is going to do for me. Now, he knew God was there, but he didn't see the answers yet. But did that affect his belief and trust in God? No, it was still there. It was very strong. He was just waiting to see what God was going to do. He knew he'd do something. Don't we know God will do something with us? Aren't we, those who are in distress and in debt of various kinds, discontented and sour, frustrated? Now, God expects us to weld ourselves into a body or a team or whichever word your analogy you want to use so that we can be of use to him at the end time. That is his goal and his purpose for us, is that we become what we ought to be. And I'm going to show you a progression in hope and in faith and in love that is absolutely necessary for us to understand and accomplish. Where did I write down the scriptures I wanted to... Oh, here they are. Now, let's understand where we came from based on 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Samuel 22. And we weren't much to start with. Now, what can we expect? I think we can expect the same thing that David did. Now, if you go on down here... Uh, David was in the hold, or holding, in a holding pattern there in the cave, hiding in the rocks. He calls it the hold here in verse 4. But he went to uh, the prophet, Gad, who said to David, Abide not in the hold anymore. You've been here long enough. Depart and get you into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Pharaoh. Now, what the prophet was telling David was, go right on into the trouble. Face it all. Your time of hiding, your time of preparation is over. Now get on out there and face it. And he did. Now, Doeg the Edomite was with the servants of Saul, and he came and reported, I'm not going to read all this, but he came and reported to Saul that he'd seen David. Well, he had seen David go to Abiathar the priest and get the sword of Goliath, if you remember the story. That's where he had been. So Doeg ran and told Saul. Well, Saul comes there, and he told Ahimelech, I guess it was, what was it, Abiathar, I guess it was Ahimelech here. Verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the footman that stood about him, turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled, and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. Saul's own men would not do what he said. 
And the king said to Doeg, Turn you and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, men, women, children, cattle, everything. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, that's the one, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. Now, Ahimelech and his priesthood and his family had done what? They had backed God and they had backed David and they died for their trouble. Now, did God have their best interests in mind? When Doeg the Edomite takes a sword and starts slaying your sons and daughters, your wife, your animals, your children, and then you, would it appear God had your best interests and must? Well, to you and me, we might have, wait a minute here. They walked by faith. They trusted in God, and they trusted in David, and they died. I think that those people stand a very, very strong chance of being in the kingdom of God. Now, is that in their best interest? You bet it is. God is not as concerned, even though he counts your hair and sparrows don't fall, and neither do you, that he doesn't know it. He knows what is best for each and every one of us in the long run. He cares more about our eternal life than he does this physical life. David said unto Abiathar, I knew it. I just knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David took it upon himself. So I'm, the, I'm the problem. I'm the cause that all your relatives are dead. Abide you with me. Fear not, for he that seeks my life seeks your life. But with me you shall be in safeguard. Even though the rest of your family is all dead, you stay with me and you'll be okay. Well, God must have had a purpose for allowing this one man to survive, to come and tell the story, and then to stay with David. The others were taken care of. You know, I look at my own dad, who died about four years ago nearly now. I can look back on his life, and I see a man there who lived and walked and trusted in God, in sickness and in health, who gave himself as a servant. I remember all the years at the feast, and once we moved to Big Sandy in 1958, when there was anything to be done, any service that needed to be rendered, a ditch to be dug, my dad was nearly always the first one in the ditch and the last one to come out of it when the job was finished. Didn't matter what it was, didn't matter if it was a community or a church project or a personal project. He did not keep score. He did not say, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me wasn't in his character, wasn't in his approach. His approach was to help anybody that needed it wherever he could help. 
He would sometimes work till two, three, four in the morning fixing cars for people. If a widow needed a washing machine fixed, the whole family would go over there when he got off work, sometimes nine or ten in the evening, and he'd work on the washing machine till midnight. Didn't take any pay for it. Just there to help. Just there to serve, no matter what. Didn't keep score. Didn't care. Tremendous example. Well, he had his problems as a human being. I understand that. I recognize that. But I also saw that example of anything I can do for anybody, anytime, I'll do it. If I had even hacked the attitude my father had, I would feel wonderful about it. He really wanted to live to see Christ coming in the clouds and not die first. And one day he just fell over dead. Didn't even know he died. Just gone like that, which I think was merciful too. I think he probably is safely within the kingdom of God. I don't mean he's there now looking down on us. But I mean, I think his future is secure. Whereas mine is still in jeopardy. He's far better off than I am, dead in faith, having walked the walk. And I think having done a pretty good job of it. Now, I'm not the judge, but I saw through my life that kind of attitude in that man. In spite of other problems and difficulties that he might have had. Wasn't perfect by any means. But boy, did he have a service, a servicing or a serving attitude is what I'm trying to spit out. I think God had his best interests in mind the day that he allowed him to fall over dead and not wait until Christ returned to lift him off the earth. If you and I live to remain, I expect to see him resurrected a split second before we're changed anyway. So he'll make it that far ahead of us. Whether we live or whether we die, we belong to God. We have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Our life is not our own. Now, what does he promise us? Let's go to Acts 14. Acts 14. Now, just using human reasoning, you would think, if you came, became convinced that you should live God's way instead of the way that seems right to a man, that you would receive all kinds of blessings and you'd never have any more trouble, right? You'd think that if God were on your side, you'd have no more trouble. God's on my side. Acts 14, verse 22. Confirming the souls of disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Disciples, followers of God, have to be exhorted to continue in the faith. As human beings, we can give up real easily. We have to be continually exhorted. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. I think my father will probably be in the kingdom of God. I, I feel very assured of that. He never became a wealthy man. 
That is, as far as the good of this world is concerned. He had some health problems that nagged at him until the day that he died, which will be healed. He saw his children healed. He saw himself healed at times. But he also saw some not healing, at least not yet, in his life, and died with some serious problems. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Narrow is the way. Rocky is the road that leads to salvation. Broad and easy is the way that leads to death. This is a tough trail that we are on. And we need to be reminded of that. When we, if we have wrong expectations of what God will do, then we're discouraged if we don't see all those expectations met immediately. Let's see some more. Psalm 34. These are probably all some that we have memorized. I think it's good to put them together and, and read them together, particularly in the trouble that the church is going through and that we are today. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many, not a few, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We're going to have many afflictions. But sooner or later, one way or another, we will be delivered from them all. 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. Here I want verse 8. Be not you therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He considered himself a slave and a prisoner of God. When you're in slavery or in prison, you simply do everything you're told, whether you like it or not, whether it's comfortable for you or not. That is the category that Paul put himself in. But be you partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Along with the good news of the kingdom of God come afflictions, difficulties that lie with believing and following that gospel. We are promised trouble. 2 Timothy 3.12 Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That one you probably know. I'm not even going to turn there. 2 Timothy 3.12 Let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4, and here I want verse 12. Beloved, that's you, that's me, that's us. We're beloved of God. We're called out from this world. <clears throat> We're called the friends of God. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't be surprised at all if you have fiery trials. A fiery trial reminds me of, of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. None of us have had that trial yet. But don't be surprised, don't think it's strange, if you have all kinds of troubles and difficulties in this life. 
Why? Because God has your eternal life, your eternal comfort, your eternal health and wealth and mind. And whatever it takes to refine us, to get the chaff, the sin, the pollution out of us and make us into vessels of gold and silver and fine jewels, whatever it takes, he will do. You see, the problem is not with God. The problem lies with us. We were naked spiritually. We thought we had everything on we needed, but we didn't. So God has stripped away everything, and he's showing us our pollutions. He's showing us our wrongs. He's showing us our sin. He's showing us our self-righteousness and our spiritual pride. And he's doing it through scattering, through trials, through difficulties, through tribulations and problems. And how we respond to this is critical. Do we give up and say, I might as well have just stayed out in this life, eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow I die, and so what? Or we lose our belief and our trust in God and no longer walk by faith. Now that's scary. And a lot of people are doing that, and they're giving up their salvation, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when they see what they missed. We are not called to give up. We are called to walk in the faith, and we are called to abide and even flourish in whatever trials, troubles, and tribulations come upon us. Now, once in a while, we start thinking of, woe is me, poor me, and I'll never make it, and we get depressed and selfish. But we have to rise above that, understanding that whatever is happening to us is happening to people whose hairs are numbered by God. He knows exactly everything you are going through, and he is allowing it that he might make silver and gold out of you not so that he might destroy you. He has no intention of destroying you. If you get destroyed, it's because you allow yourself to destroy yourself or allow Satan to do it through your human nature. God is not out to get any of us. He is out to save us. And he has to save us from ourselves in this world. That is why it is so important at the end time that we get out of this world, that we get rid of this world and come to walk by faith in God. Living faith. And in every aspect of life. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. For we walk, in verse 7, by faith, not by sight. We walk in belief and trust in God, not by what we see. We see poverty. We see frustration. We see illness. That's not what we walk by. We do not let our thoughts and our attitudes be determined by what we see. 
If you allow your life to be guided by what you see, you are not going to make it. We have to walk by things that are not seen. What he says here, we walk by faith, not by sight. Notice verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In other words, we're willing to give up absolutely everything, including our physical life, to ultimately have eternal life. People in this world who react carnally by sight, when they see trouble, when they see sickness, when they see problems, immediately turn for human carnal solutions. We are learning not to do that. We are learning to trust in what we cannot see. rather than going where everyone else goes because they can't see God in their lives. We are learning to walk by faith, not by sight. And we have to be willing to do as Christ did, and that is give our lives. I am not going in for a quadruple bypass. I'm just not going to do it. Not that I know that I need one. But if that came to that point, I would rather die walking by faith with my salvation insured than to go have my chest all taken apart and my arteries all rotted out like a radiator or veins taken out of my legs and put up in there, or whatever they want, one might want to do, or give me a pig's heart, just not going that way. We have to learn to walk, to trust in God, no matter what. Now, I have seen in my lifetime, in my experience with God's people, people who have come right to the point of death I mean right at death's door, and then be healed. I saw my brother sitting right here at the back of the hall today when he was a little child, just a baby, where his breath had virtually stopped. And my dad sat at the table and rubbed him and rubbed his chest for hour after hour after hour because he was at death's door. And he was healed. I don't know what would have happened had we run him into the emergency room and had them start doing whatever they do. But he's alive today. Doesn't amount to much yet, but he's alive. But then I don't amount to much either, and I'm alive. I think I was healed of pneumonia when I was about... 10 or so. Not pneumonia. I mean, what was the bad stuff? The polio. The kind that kills you, not cripples you. 
I've seen these things. And yet I've seen people die in the faith too. There comes a time when God says, the pollution is gone, I see silver and gold there. Why not let them die? There's a time when each of us is to die. Now you and I don't have the same view God does. We expect perfection of each other, do we not? And yet God says that our judgment is based upon what we do with what we have to do with. Now some might appear to us to be real spiritual, but maybe they were born genetically with more ability to control themselves than some others who came from a weaker stock emotionally and mentally, or not as smart, or whatever. So we look upon this person who just naturally has certain strengths as being more spiritual. Not necessarily. We don't know who started with what, do we? I'm thankful the judgment is God's. He judges your progress based on where you started, not what you look like at the moment to someone else. He expects more, in other words, of some than he does others. Now that doesn't mean that if we didn't have much, we can excuse ourselves and not do much. Because to him who has, that will be taken away and given to someone else if he doesn't do something with it. If you didn't have much to start with, you do not have an excuse to wrap it up in a napkin and bury it in the ground. Use it, develop it, no matter how small it is. And the progress you make is what you're judged on, not a comparison to someone who might have had ten talents to start with. Understand that God is fairer than that. He knows where you've been, he knows what you've done, he knows what you started with, and therefore he knows how much he expects of you. But he does expect something of everyone. No matter what you were given to start with, you must increase it. Isn't that fair? Everybody has to grow. Everybody has to overcome. But there's a certain amount of mercy based on how much you had to start with. That's an encouragement for us, who are the malcontents, the in debt, and the distressed, and the weak in the base of the world, whom God called without much. Why? To show his glory in the end that if the weak and the base can walk by faith and trust in God, no matter what the cost might be, they will be in his kingdom, and someday the world will look to them and say, Wow, he did that with that? Yes, he did. I knew those people. They didn't amount to much. But were those those kooks? Yeah, look at them now. Christ couldn't even heal but a few sick folk in his own country where he came from because they simply didn't believe. Isn't that that carpenter's son? Yeah, he's growing. Yeah, I recognize him. I knew him and he was a little kid. He didn't amount to anything. He had no honor in his own country. They didn't believe it. They just didn't believe it. And even Jesus Christ himself couldn't do major miracles there. They didn't believe it. We have to believe it. 
with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. Walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not a faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. Now, faith doesn't take away the law. You have to walk according to God's rules and ways, but you have to, faith, you have, to have the faith to believe that that will accomplish something for you in the future. In other words, our carnal mind has to be changed to the point that we believe denying ourselves and doing what he wants done will ultimately benefit us. Because it is not in our nature to do things God's way. It is in our nature to be selfish. It is in our nature to do anything we can that we think we would enjoy. That's the way our mind works. Or it's dysfunctional and shouldn't work that way, but that's the way human nature is. That has to be changed by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, which injects into us the belief that if we follow God's rules, if we believe in, in other words, if we believe in this book and living by every word of it, so that's one of benefit us. Now, most people will say, ah, the Bible, forget it. It's just a story, a bunch of things some men wrote. doesn't amount to much. Or parts of it don't amount to much. It's only the parts that I like that are important, so especially the kind that say you don't have to do anything but accept Jesus and you're saved. That's a pretty simple set of rules, isn't it? Accept the Lord and you're saved. There's a little more to it than that. Those people do not want to be convinced that they have to change anything. They want to be just like they are, and they even have a song, Just as I am, Lord, just as I am. Wrong. <laughs> Why does he say repent and overcome? He doesn't want you just like you am. He wants you changed. He wants you repentant. He wants you different. And it takes belief. It takes faith. Trust. To come to that point. Romans 1, 17. Romans 1, verse 17. Verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Believing is trusting, is faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The faith of God has to be shed abroad in our hearts. He believes in himself. He knows what he will do. You think God believes in his plan? Do you think he believes that it's going to work and that mankind is going to become God someday? He believes it. 
Getting us to believe it is the problem. But that faith has to come from Him into our hearts and minds to the point we believe it like He believes it. And then we walk by faith. We don't do this because we know it's better for us in the long run if we do this. We've got to be convinced. Our mind has to be changed because by nature we are not convinced to walk by faith. Now where was that quoted? He says, as it is written. That comes from Habakkuk 2. comes from Habakkuk 2, which is an end time prophecy. So he's talking to people who would be living at the end time, that is, you and me. Habakkuk is written to you and me. And it was quoted in Romans from the Old Testament, believe it or not. Habakkuk 2. After Habakkuk had gotten through all his attitudes, questioning God, he finally says, I'm going to sit on my watch and sit on the tower and see what God's going to do. Isn't that what David said? Take care of my folks while I wait and see what God's going to do for me. We're in the same position. The Lord answered and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, or write it down, that he may run that reads it. When you read Habakkuk and you understand how it fits the end-time church, and it's talking about you and me who are getting older and older day by day, it's for us, this generation, that will not perish before this thing ends. It is for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait. Why? Because you believe it's going to happen. You trust that God's plan is going to work. It'll speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not wait forever. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. At the end time, there will be those who are lifted up, who have spiritual pride. Pride from their background, pride because of their ego or intellectual vanity or whatever it might be. They think they have need of nothing. Revelation 3. They think they're okay. Or at least, if they're not okay, they're certainly better than those that they are around. Comparing themselves among themselves, they are not wise. Spiritual pride and vanity. No, we live by faith in God. Yes, also, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. God is against pride. He resists pride. He gives grace to the humble. God does not want us to be proud in any form or fashion, but to walk in belief that this thing's going to turn out right for us in the long run, no matter what it costs us today. Now, I'm looking at people who counted the cost and have given up land and homes, husbands, wives, children, family, whatever, to obey some instructions from God. I see people who are walking, living by faith. Are all their problems solved? Not by any stretch of the imagination. But you people 
that I'm looking at right now are living and walking by faith. You have been willing to give up whatever it was in this life that was precious to you in order to follow some biblical instruction. We have not seen all the answers yet, but they will come. How do I know they'll come? Because they're written in this book. Because Habakkuk just told us it will happen. God is going to bless at the set appointed time. And he is going to heal like healing has never occurred before. And he is going to resurrect again. And he is going to change the heavens so that we have a 360-day year again. And he is going to cause the sun and the moon not to give their light and thick darkness and clouds in the day of the Lord and destruction is going to come on this world and those who are faithful to him are going to be saved out of it and taken to a place where they will be saved because they walked by faith. I'm telling you, we're already doing that. We need to do more of it. We need to walk a better walk. We need to fight it all the time and do better than we are. But it is not lost upon God that we have been willing to give up certain things because we felt there was a need to do a job, to cry out a message whether anybody will listen or not, to do as Ezekiel did and make our foreheads as flint. It's pretty hard stuff, flint. We have to be that way. We don't care what people say. We have a job to do. And we will walk by faith, not seeing the answers. God has to test us, brethren, before he gives us the answers. That's the way it has always been. That's the way it was with David, who became king of all Israel. It's the way he says it will be with all his people. Why do you think the book of Hebrews 11, or the book of Hebrews, and particularly chapter 11, is written? Because all those people, no matter what the circumstance, walked by faith. They were not always delivered. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach were delivered for a purpose. Isaiah was sawed in half, stem to stern, for a purpose. Isaiah will be in the kingdom of God. He was among the faithful. We are told very clearly that there will be some who die in this age. They will take your life, Matthew 24, deliver you up to death. Doesn't sound real exciting, does it? Going to happen, though, to some of us. Going to happen to some of us. Can't God see? Doesn't God know that they're about to kill you? 
You bet he does. And all the angels in heaven will do just like they did when they stoned Stephen. They'll look over the sea of glass and watch you down here about to be shot, electrocuted, owned, ripped asunder, knifed, whatever they decide to do to you. Oil and oil, doesn't matter. And the Father and the Son will look out from their throne and they'll say, that one has been walking by faith. That one has not cared what circumstances looked like. They believe with all their heart that there is a God in heaven who counted the hairs of their head. And they know that if they're faithful in little, they will be faithful in much, and that they can take it because they have walked by faith. And the angels will sing to God in songs of hallelujah when you die for what you believe. Did God ignore you? Did God forget you? No. He used you as an example of one who was willing to give his very life for God and for your brethren who might be inspired by what you did. Just as the early New Testament Christians were inspired by Stephen who preached his heart out and told those people the way it really was and then had stones thrown at him until he died. And God and all the angels cheered. Stephen will be in the kingdom of God and live forever in peace and happiness and love. And so will we. Because right now, we are learning day by day to walk by faith and all the little things that God would have us to do. And we can know that when we then have big things come, we can handle it. On the face of it, you think they start doing that to you, you don't know whether you can handle it. God says if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in much. Because that has become your habit, it has become the way you walk, the way you live, the way you think, the way you act. And therefore, no matter how big the trial, the, tr the trouble, the temptation might be, you have a history of doing what is right. See why it's so important to do what is right every day and all the little things? So that you might be faithful in much if you're ever faced with it. And I think we're going to be faced with much. So let's be ready. Let's walk by faith. I didn't finish by any means everything I had here. Maybe I'll have to do it later, but we're starting to walk by faith. Let's continue.